I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. In response to the COVID-19 crisis, we're launching with a theme, Silver Linings, a short series dedicated to rediscovering balance for your own life and perhaps for life itself during what may be one of the toughest challenges that has faced humanity in this lifetime. I'm honored today that my guest on this podcast is Tupten Jinpa. I met Tupten for the first time in 2017 in one of those happiness conferences. We go around as we try to spread this message of happiness and compassion. And I spent a wonderful hour with him. The first hour we spent together listening and learning about so many things that completely opened my horizons. Tupten was then so generous to introduce me to His Holiness office in Dharamsala, where I had the opportunity to go a year later and spend an hour and a half with what I believe is the most amazing soul in our universe. I spent that time with His Holiness laughing like a child, but learning so much and feeling blessed being next to him. And for that, I'm eternally grateful to Tupten. Uh, Tupten Jimpa is an academic who is uh, focused on religious studies, uh, Western and Eastern philosophies. He's an author of many successful books, and he is a thinker and a speaker that spreads a message of compassion around the world. Tupten La, I cannot thank you enough. It's such a pleasure to have you with me, and hopefully one more of those enlightening conversations and an opportunity for me and our audience to learn something new. I wanted to ask you first about the current situation we're going through. If everyone's fine, if your family is okay, all of your loved ones are okay. And how, how are you dealing with the current situation with the lockdowns around COVID-19? Well, first of all, thank you, Mo. And it's wonderful to reconnect. And I know that uh, you are passionate about uh, spreading the message of uh, happiness and compassion around the world. So uh, I see you as an important ally in this broader global mission. So thank you for inviting me on your podcast series. Uh, thank you for asking about my health and my family. Um, my wife and I, uh, we are in the Laurentians, um, sort, of, sort of almost in a semi-retreat setting. And uh, we are very fortunate because we have the luxury to be able to be together and um, to go through this period of social isolation. Of course, like everybody else, at the forefront of my mind is also both during the waking hours and semi-waking hours as well in the evening. Uh, and somewhere in the background is always this constant fear and anxiety and pervasive sense of uncertainty. And the concerns that worries that I have for my people in my life that I know, some of who are elderly, like my two in-laws who are in their 80s, and also my sister who is a nurse practitioner in the Boston area. So she's at the forefront of this, um, you know, crisis. And I have um, nieces who are nurses um, in New York area and Toronto. And then I know a lot of people in India where I know the basic health conditions, healthcare conditions are very challenging. So where, imagine if there is a widespread 
pandemic in India itself, the density of the population, and this is what worries me, of course. So anyway, thank you for asking the question. Yeah. So how do you handle this concern? I think this is not a concern that's specific for you, Dr. Jimpa. So everyone feels the same. How, how do you handle that? How do you find peace inside you? Well, in my case, I have two daughters who are young in their early 20s, actually. Uh, one is 20, just turned 21. The other one is <laughs> actually at the end of March. So I told her that she will remember this birthday because this is the birthday of the year of coronavirus. I said she will remember because we were not there. We had a sort of a toast virtually where everybody, all the families sort of got together through the FaceTime. So I told my two daughters, as well as my close family members, um, you know, my sisters, my brothers and my, you know, uh, in-laws, I told them that in this situation, there are certain things that we can do to protect our mind, because in social isolation, you're forced to be with your mind for a long time. <laughs> Not a great place to be for some people, huh? <laughs> exactly. For uh, for those who have been monastics, who have been hermits, it's not a big issue. But for most people, normally we are social creatures. Even if we happen to be living alone, you go to work, you have network of friends, you socialize, you go to bar. So weekends, you do various things, you go to the gym. So there's a lot of social activity, even if we're living alone. And then the basic idea that we are free to do what we want is in the background of our everyday life. Now, all of this has been prevented close to us. So in that situation, you know, loneliness could creep in, frustration will come in, fear and a pervasive sense of uncertainty and anxiety will creep in. So I think it's really important, I told everybody that changing the mindset, adopting the right mindset is crucial. If you adopt the right mindset and prepare yourself by saying that we're in for a long haul, you know, if the social distancing is the primary method by which we can curb the spread of this virus, then it will be effective only if that social distancing is done universally, you know, by everyone, and then it is done over a prolonged period of time. So which means I told everybody in my life that we're in for a long haul. So it's better to set up that mindset and be prepared. What that does is that you don't get the frustration that normally comes out of impatience. Mm -hmm. and, and so this is how you protect your mind, yeah. So the idea here is to, to avoid assuming or expecting something that is not true. So the reality is that some of us will think about this as just, uh, I need to get out and it's going to be a day or two or a week or two. But, but, the, but the truth is, this is an event of a magnitude that is really so big that none of us has seen anything like that before. I don't think there is anyone who has a living memory of anything like this. You know, so the yeah. closest in history is the Spanish flu. And I don't think there are maybe one or two. I remember reading there's someone who actually is alive, who was around at the time of the Spanish flu. But nobody otherwise has any memory. So it's a completely unprecedented in our yeah. life. So uh, there is nothing we can draw on from our personal experience to say, okay, these are the things I can bring to bear. You really have to start with a, like a kind of a fresh mind. And then the other important thing is that you need to find a way to keep your uh, anxiety and fear at bay. Because as individuals, there's not much we can do. The situation is beyond our personal control. 
And also, it's not just us. Everybody is in the board. And if we are frustrated and if we don't obey the discipline of social distancing, we may be unwittingly be a carrier of the virus and spread to the others. So there is a sort of a moral dimension, you know, this is where compassion comes in. So I think just being able to prepare your mind, create that space in your mind that I'm in here for a long haul, and then basically make sure that you continue to connect with the loved ones in your life. These days, thanks to technology, we can not just speak, but also see each other in real time, Mm -hmm. which really helps. And then applying some basic techniques like deep breathing so that you bring awareness if because the most important thing is to make sure that you don't give your mind away to be taken away by fear and anxiety and then on top of that there will be suspicion because if you when you go shopping yes (laughs) it's like who's this guy next to me (laughs) exactly so suspicion is going to be part of it i mean there's generally you know it has happened historically in the world you know when natural disasters strike people come together when there are plagues and pandemics then people are suspicious and they (laughs) separate yeah absolutely so i have so many questions that that spark in my mind from this short conversation i want to start with the idea of isolation and you've been a practicing monk for years you know you've been the official or the principal translator for his holiness the dalai lama and you practiced tibetan buddhism to a very very deep level and so in those who've managed to go through being a monk for so many years actually see beauty in isolation is that something you can tell those who don't know about in your experience where can that beauty be found i think it's just the joy of experiencing solitude and silence. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, our modern life is so busy and it's so dominated by doing one thing after another. And also with the constant exposure to entertainment, we keep our mind busy either with thoughts or with sensory experiences. So we very rarely actually give ourselves the experience to be quietly alone with our mind. So even in a social context, I remember the first time I was traveling to the West, I noticed that in the social context, when people are talking, if there is a silence, people sometimes often are uncomfortable. If there is a silence of longer (laughs) than, you know, half a minute, you know. Mm -hmm. So so I think this says something about the fast-paced nature of the modern life. But one thing that I would actually, I mean, this is a strange thing to say, is that because we have been external circumstances as force us to be alone, we will have a lot of opportunities to be alone with our mind. I would actually strongly encourage people to seize that opportunity and bring the mind of curiosity, just to take a, do some deep breathing and just relax and just listen to that silence that is inside you, you'll be surprised, actually. I mean, even such a simple thing, normal thing that we do as a breathing becomes fascinating. So I think this is where I think, you know, even if you're not a monastic, an ordinary person, just being able to have that taste of that silence, that, that, you know, that solitude, I think it's helpful. I totally, I can't agree more. I mean, 
to me, honestly, my favorite hour of the day is my silent hour. It's, uh, you know, first of all, it's when you start practicing silence, being with your mind alone. My practice always, you know, in the past started with, let's say, 25 minutes or whatever. And by halfway through it, I'm like, I'm going to die. And then somehow there is that moment where when the 25 minutes end, you know, I use my phone as a timer and I press it and I say, can we repeat this, please? Because it's so enjoyable. There is so much joy in there. And I think people who haven't been used to this, surprisingly, more and more of them come to me today now that we're a month and a bit into the lockdown. And they start to actually talk about the joy of the space and silence. Yeah. And then there are so many insights. Is there a practice that you believe would help people to get to insights. I mean, the insight of not being impatient because this is not something that we can control. Is that something we can learn, we can teach ourselves to find? I think one thing that, um, you know, simple practice that I often suggest to people who are coming into this kind of practice for the first time in their life is to choose a minute or two in the morning and, you know, just check in you know, how you are feeling, what thoughts come uppermost in your mind the first thing you wake up in the morning. Just to take a little bit of, start with a two or three deep breathing and do a check-in. And then make a conscious intention today. So for example, if you are struggling with anger or frustration, so today I'll be a bit more mindful and be bring more awareness into situations where I normally lose myself or things like this, or if you, for example, like uh, having frustration, or if you want to be more compassionate, if you want to bring more kindness into your interaction. So just choosing a particular intention in the morning, and then just observe during the daytime how that shows up. I think that really will make a big difference because most people have very good intentions. And most people also have good values because we are, after all, all, you know, human beings, everybody wishes to be happy. Everybody wishes peace and happiness for their loved ones. Everybody wishes to see a world that is a bit more just and kinder. So when you strip down all the things that differentiate us and our humanity is revealed bare, there's an amazing degree of similarity. And that similarity speaks to what matters most to us as individuals. And in this time of coronavirus, because of the pervasive fear and anxiety, we will recognize, because the first thought that comes to our mind is your love for your loved ones, your concern for your loved ones, your concern for your family. That shows that what matters most Yes. And then, of course, afterwards you worry about what it's going to do to my job and whether the, you know, my stock market value is going to go down. Those comes after the first thought that really comes up has to do with people in your life. So this is where I think most of us have good intentions. Most of us has these deep values as human beings. But in our actual life, there is often a kind of a disparity between our intention and our values and the way we actually live our life. So this is where bringing silence, bringing mindfulness, bringing conscious intention will allow us to make that gap smaller and smaller and smaller. And the end result is a happier person because if we are more all-rounded, if we are more integrated, 
at the end of the day, you look in your mirror and what you see, you like that person that you see in the mirror. You also sleep much better. So I think all around, this kind of more conscious approach to life really is the key to happiness. Yeah. Yeah, I think intention really, really makes all the difference. And I think most of us, because of the fast-paced life that we're used to, uh, at least before sort of life grounded us to slow down, is a life that doesn't have that ability in the morning to actually set your intention for the day or for the month or for the year, as a matter of fact, which is a bit of running around without really knowing where we're going. And maybe this is the invitation for us to slow down and find out where we're going. When I asked you at the beginning, uh, uh, I asked you, how are you in the current situation? And of course, as I always expected from you, you didn't talk about yourself at all. Uh, you talked about all of those that you love and care for, uh, whether relatives or close ones or loved ones or people in general. And, you know, of course, I loved your book, uh, A Fearless Heart, where I think the most eye-opening part of it for me was the, was the idea that we fear being compassionate. We think that if we're compassionate, the world will eat us alive somehow. But yet you are pure compassion. His Holiness the Dalai Lama is compassion itself, right? And teach us a little bit about that. How can you be compassionate in this situation and why would compassion help us? You know, in the West where I'm living now, at least stuck for the lockdown, people are just so worried about themselves and about their freedom being taken away and about will they have toilet rolls tomorrow and for myself and my backside and it's all about me. But you're just talking about the others. How does that work? Um, you know, I'm fortunate myself because I've always had a quite a good health. So I don't have any personal kind of, you know, um, issues with illness and I'm not exposed to the virus and I'm not in a in the front line. So it's really uh, for me at the moment about myself. Uh, there's no real danger. I think one thing about compassion and, and I hope that this crisis that we are all experiencing and it's truly unprecedented the scale and the the kind of the widespread nature of it and the drastic measure that is required collectively as a society all of this is really truly unprecedented so in this situation i think one thing that psychology has shown us and the spiritual traditions have known this for a long time is that when you are going through a really painful experience what makes that experience even more unbearable is if you feel alone. So the loneliness part actually brings extra dimension of acuteness to your experience of pain. So there, simply opening up that space and leaving space for others, your loved ones, people that, that you, you come into contact with. And even thinking about those who are less fortunate. I mean, for example, in this current crisis, you know, imagine in many parts of the world, the ones who have suffered most are the elderly. And often these cases, the viruses were brought to these elderly homes unwittingly by grandchildren or children who are unwitting carriers of this illness. And then you have this whole contagion. So there are, and then imagine the family members of these elderly who are dying and the family members cannot go and pay their last respects because of the lockdown. So all of this, if you think about it, there are way more people out there 
who are in a much worse situation. And simply allowing your heart to acknowledge that, to recognize that, and to recognize that just like myself, they also wish to be happy. They also do not want problem. They also do not want to see problem in their loved ones. And that opening up the heart really, in some sense, brings a level of courage and resilience in your mind so that you can deal with your own problem in a much more effective way. So in a sense, it's sort of paradoxical. By opening up your heart and caring about someone else's problem, somehow gives you the strength to go through your own actually personal problem. So it's this is why compassion is such a powerful thing. And in any case, at the core of compassion is the relationship with someone. And this is where the power of compassion comes in. Because if we allow, open our heart, we then allow our heart to feel connected to someone. And when you feel connected, it leaves no room for loneliness. And this social, this social connectedness, for example, like there was a very famous Harvard study, which I cited in my book, which has been a longitudinal study that has been going on for something like over 50 years. And they, you know, looked through over thousands of people, taking into account all the fact, other factors. And one thing they found out that was the strongest indicator of good health in their 80s, the test was done when they were, when the people were in subjects were in their 50s. With respect to health, happiness, and longevity, there was one thing that mattered most. That was the feeling of social connection, relationships. So this is something that even people who may be generally more sort of disposed towards thinking more about themselves, even from a selfish point of view, <laughs> taking compassion seriously is in your own interest. That's a sort of a strange paradox. It's the best thing you can do for yourself is to think about others. Yeah, and that's why His Holiness in his public talks often says pursuit of self-interest is a very important natural impulse that we have. But he says that the problem is most people pursue it in the foolish way. If you're going to be selfish, be wise selfish. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Go further. So, So there is also an action element to compassion. So compassion is not only feeling the suffering of others, but it's also taking action. One, I was asked to uh, to speak uh, or to record a, a podcast with Elizabeth Day here in the UK, uh, How to Fail. And when she asked me some of my observations, and I observed that there is, for example, there are so many people that have lost their jobs, which I, I feel is so unfair in the hardest of all times, unless a company really couldn't pay them to lay them off. But, you know, so many have been. I, I think there has been two of the largest ever filings for unemployment in the US. I think three and six million people filed and so on. And it's happening across the world. Those, however, who have not lost their jobs and are working from home would recognize that they are their costs have declined so drastically because they don't have to pay for a transportation. They don't go and pay for cinemas. They don't, right? And dinners and all of that. And so suddenly there is a surplus on one side and a shortage on the other. And compassion would actually compel you to go out to those friends and say, do you need me to give you money or lend you money even to help you out through this, this time? You know, The fact that we feel lonely 
you know, and if you feel the compassion to others, then don't only complain about you being lonely, but maybe pick up the phone and call someone who didn't expect you to call or have a Zoom call with someone that you know needs someone to ask about them. And any of those thoughts, I mean, any recommendations from you? That's a brilliant suggestion. That's a brilliant suggestion. Uh, I think, I mean, this is one area where compassion is very powerful. Compassion, we know now from science that when compassion arises, the motor regions of the brain that are involved in the action gets activated because compassion is motivating us to do something. And so in many cases, compassion will manifest in the form of a behavior in action. So you're right about this. I haven't actually thought about this. This is a brilliant suggestion because people like myself and you who can work from home, and now because we can't go out, there is clearly as sort of a surplus from our normal expenses. And I think being able to share it with um, those in your life and then maybe even better to contribute towards the larger causes. For example, one of the things that I've been worrying about the last few years is the situation in the Syrian refugee camps in Greece and Lebanon. Those are, if you read the stories of the inmates there, I mean, it's just like heart-wrenching. So, and then imagine right now, I mean, if the virus happens to land in one of those camps, you're talking about human misery at a scale that is unimaginable. So there are, and Red Cross and other organizations have constant work there. So I think it would be actually a really good gesture to give some outlet to our compassion and fellow feeling. I think that's a brilliant suggestion, actually. Yeah. I hope some of our listeners will go, you know, and think about that. And I think it's definitely something that's, like you rightly said, and His Holiness always says, it's probably a very selfish thing to do because it will come back to you, not only in your happiness, but in leaps and bounds, hopefully, of positive karma. As you know, I am I'm quite curious about Buddhist studies. I'm among all of my, you know, I follow multiple faiths and multiple religions and multiple spiritual teachings, and I find joy and beautiful cores to all of them. In Buddhism, I'm really intrigued by the idea of the Four Noble Truths and the idea that suffering uh, doesn't just emerge, that there is a cause for suffering. And when we started the conversation, you spoke a little bit about what causes us to suffer in terms of our unhappiness. But if we consider the outspread of a virus all over the world as part of suffering, uh, what would be the causes for that? I think this, in something like epidemics and pandemics, it's the causes are much more complicated and complex. But one thing we do know is that um, epidemiologists will tell us that for viruses to spread, it needs new hosts. And the secret lies in understanding how the transmission works and how fast the transmission is. I think this is where, uh, I mean, you know, looking back, I mean, I don't want to get into a sort of a blame game, but looking back, I read New York Times on a regular basis. And also uh, because of my Tibetan background, uh, I have access to news from within China as well. And there were already awareness of some potentially dangerous epidemic based on virus coming from Wuhan area as early as, you know, early December, you know, mid-December. So that that was already there. But now we know that, for example, at the initial 
of authorities' reaction has been to suppress the information because of fear of what it might do to the economy, stock market, and authorities higher up. And so this is where I think the first kind of real tragedy began. And something like this, if countries are not well economically integrated in the old days, then it's kind of okay. But now in a globalized world, where many of these cities have flights going to all parts of the world, literally hundreds and thousands of flights, something like this, if it is not shared transparently, will have a devastating effect. And this is what we are seeing. So that, I think, is looking back, I hope that's one of the major fault lines at the international level that I hope will be fixed. Because, you know, this is, we simply cannot afford to have this kind of irresponsibility where a virus that should have been contained in one confined area somehow slipped out. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting learning. Huh? It's, again, it's about us humanity working together rather than working for our individual gains that I think makes us learn. And something like this should really transcend national governmental interest and you know, political biases, you know, because it is a matter of humanity. So there is so much that I think we're going to be learning from this situation. There are so many habits that changed. So I talk to people and I take a walk in the park every day for an hour. And, you know, you can see people's habits changing. You can see people walking slower. You can see them smiling at each other, respecting each other, keeping the two meters distance, and so on and so forth. Are there any habits that you believe should remain after the end of this? I think some appreciation of time being alone with oneself. I hope that will somehow seep into the culture. Up until recently, it was seen as kind of rarefied interest of the people who have more contemplative bent of mind, you know. <laughs> but somehow for widespread culture, it was sort of it wasn't seen as important or interesting. So that I think will be one. The second thing is, one thing that we did learn is that actually how a lot of the work can be done from home, mm -hmm. substantially. So which I hope will have a real social impact on structuring the the workspace so that i think is an important one and and also we are now thanks to zoom and others webex and others we also know that quite a lot of meetings can be done from a distance you know there are certain elements of meeting where you do need a in-person physical contact because nothing can really substitute it but it's a question of balance because you know when people travel everywhere you have the huge environmental kind of, you know, sort of carbon footprint. Yeah. So I think that those habits, I hope, and I also hope that coming out of this, that nations and international communities, bodies will come up with a, a slightly more nuanced way of measuring what a country's economic success would look like. So that it's not measured in this very crude terms of growth you know, on a kind of a, a national output basis, which is what we have right now. And also so that there is a kind of a appreciation of a slightly slower pace. And also maybe, um, you know, one of the things that I hope will happen is that uh, in the United States, for example, 
The fact that the United States stands as an anomaly among all the Western nations with no universal health care just became very, very apparent this time. You know, how, how strikingly it is an anomaly. And I hope things like that will get resolved. So I hope coming out of this, I hope we will not rush back to business as usual and pretend oh, that. I so wish yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah. I hope we will be more mature because to put it crudely, this tiny virus brought human beings to it, to our knees. I mean, it's as simple as that. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. And this, totally. this should teach us a powerful lesson on humility because as a species we humans have had a higher degree of hubris yeah i think humility is an interesting keyword right? it's like in the in the islamic studies for example we we have a, a saying that is about when man or human is the most arrogant then little things will hit us most and they'll always be unexpected and they'll always 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 overpower our arrogance, our belief that we can control everything. And when in reality, there are so many things outside our control. I cannot end without asking you about my favorite spirit, my favorite soul on the planet. So I spent an hour and a half next to his holiness. And I will tell you, hands down, you don't feel like you feel with others. And so you, lucky you, have been probably the most photographed person next to him ever. And you worked with him on 10 books, at least, I think. And, uh, and you've been his principal translator. Tell me, how would you describe this beautiful, beautiful being? Well, thank you for asking. Actually, when uh, the situation in Wuhan was looking bad and it was spreading to Europe, people, those of us who work with his holiness closely, we were very, very afraid for him because he's in his mid-80s now. He's going to be 85 this July. And so fortunately, the office of his holiness took it very seriously so that you know, he stopped meeting people quite early. So, and he's, he's well, uh, I've been in touch with the office regularly. He, I mean, I've had the good fortune to serve him for now, you know, almost 35 years. This October, it'll be 35 years. Lucky you. I, I love you, but I have a bit of envy in my heart <laughs> for you. <laughs> um, and uh, his presence in my life has been such an important force. And in fact, you know, I often tell people that when I'm feeling a little down or when I need a little bit of encouragement, I just bring his image to my mind with his smile. And one amazing thing about his holiness, and you have experienced that, is that when you are with him, he is there fully for you. And he makes you feel complete. And that is the power. And at the same time, there is a degree of, a high degree of humility on his part. And there is a kind of, you can feel that here is a person who is totally at home in his skin. There's a kind of a deep-seated restfulness, a settledness, but also a high element of joy. You know, he laughs like a kid. You know, and there is this just amazing vitality, yet at the same time grounded in this powerful serenity. So he's, you know, he's been really, really important. And his teachings on compassion, his teachings on sort of mutual respect among all the world's religious traditions and how all the teachings of the world's great traditions, when it comes to teachings on ethics, really comes down to compassion universally. So all of these have really been very, very powerful. So. 
And perhaps maybe his own way of finding joy and laughter, even in the hardest of times, is perhaps what we need most in today's world. Yeah. Tuptanla, I cannot thank you enough. I mean, it's always been a pleasure. It's always been a joy for me to observe you as you spread your peacefulness and your knowledge and your wisdom. I hope you'll uh, stay safe. And uh, I'm really, really grateful for your time with us. Well, thank you very much, Mo. I've watched your work now and uh, ever since I met you. And, and then it was really, I mean, it's been really nice to see how you have been able to build it up and you really kind of stay in there because sometimes this kind of work can feel a little lonely at the beginning. It and does you have sometimes. You have really hung in there and I'm really happy that you were able to have that opportunity to be with His Holiness so that you have a powerful inspiration from Him and that memory will stay with you. And thank you for doing this because in this time of coronavirus, while everybody is in pain, we also need voices like yours to remind us the world is still there. We are part of it. Everybody's in the same boat and we will come out of this. We'll come through this as a humanity. We absolutely will. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Tupton Jimpa's work and perhaps enjoy a couple of free meditations, go to compassioninstitute.com. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.